As we start today, what I want you guys to do is to hop with me in the way back machine. And we're going to go way back to when you guys were kids on Christmas. Now, some of you, it's going to be a really long journey. Others, others of you, not so much. But I want you to think about when you were a kid on Christmas. And if you were like me, there was this, you, there were all kinds of gifts that you hoped to get. But there was usually this one really big gift that you were excited about. Did anyone have that? There's this one big thing they really hoped they'd get. You know, you, might, you knew you were going to get socks and underwear and like a CD or something, but you're, you're hoping to get this one big thing. And I remember when I was a kid, this one big gift that I really wanted was a Razor scooter. Does anyone remember these? These Razor scooters right here? Some of you are remember from your childhood. I know some of your kids might have them. They still make them. But I remember my friend Drew, who was like the coolest guy I knew, had a Razor scooter. And I'd watch him out there and he would just glide on it. And I was like... I want to glide. And so I really wanted a Razor scooter. And so it was the big thing. I knew that if I could get this Razor scooter, I would, I would glide. I would be cooler. I would be able to hang out with Drew. I ever, everything would just change. My whole life would change if I could just get this one thing. There was a lot of hype behind this gift. And I didn't get it for Christmas that year. But on my 10th birthday, I see a box that is like perfect Razor scooter size. And I knew exactly what it was. So I I ran to the gift and I unwrapped it and I looked and it was a Razor scooter. And so it was so cool. And I was so excited and I was pumped. And I took it outside immediately. And I'm riding and for the, and it was just the most amazing gift I'd ever had. It completely lived up to the hype for about 30 seconds. And then I'm riding it and I'm kicking. I'm like, this is way harder than pedaling my bike. And I'm going, and I go way faster on my bike too. And it just wasn't cool anymore. And so my dad got really frustrated with me because maybe, maybe your kids have done this to you. Is I, I took the Razor scooter and I put it in the garage, the gift I had begged for for a year and never rode it again. <laughs> and so it just, it just wasn't as cool. It wasn't what I thought. It didn't live up to the hype. And I'm sure we've all had moments, maybe you've had Christmas presents that didn't live up to the hype, but I'm sure all of us have had moments where something was really hyped up, but then it ended up not being as good. Maybe it's a, a restaurant or a movie that has great reviews and you go to the restaurant or go watch the movie and it just wasn't that great. Maybe on a more personal note, maybe you've had been set up on a blind date and your friends have told you how awesome this guy is. And then you get there and the guy hasn't showered in three months, has 347 cats and lives in his great-grandmother's basement's basement. And you're like, oh, this is not what I was expecting. We've all had these moments where something just hasn't lived up to the hype. We've been sold a bag of goods. We've been told how great it is. But when we actually get it, it's not that great at all. Now, what I think is that for many of us, that's how we view Jesus. We've been sold this bag of of hype where he's supposed to be amazing and change everything. But when we actually experience Jesus, he just doesn't live up to the hype. He doesn't change everything. And you might be here and be a Christian and believe in God. But if you're honest with yourself, you would say, Jesus doesn't really do anything. And maybe you want him to do something. You hoped that Jesus would transform your life. And when you first were saved, you were excited. But as you've gone on, you've realized Jesus just doesn't live up. And you want to be passionate. You want him to change everything. But all he really has done is made you go to church every so often. And you try to be a a good person, but that's it. And it's kind of disappointing. Maybe you're here today and and you're not a Christian, and that's the reason why you're not a Christian, is you've heard about Jesus, you might have even tried Jesus, tried to follow him, but after like a week or so, you realize nothing happened. And and it's not so much like you hate religion or hate God, but it's just, he just doesn't do anything. I think many of us 
if we're honest with ourselves, both Christians and those yet to believe wrestle with this tension of does Jesus actually do anything? Does he actually live up to the hype? But what I want to suggest today is that could it be possible that the problem isn't that God never speaks to us, but it's that we don't listen to him? Is it possible that he has little impact on our lives because we're ignoring the opportunities that are all around us? Could it be that there are sacred moments where God can come down and use you and you can experience God in the everyday rhythms of your life? I think so. I think that, that God, when he comes into our lives, he doesn't just change our, the way we think or the way we believe, but I believe that he changes our whole being. We just need to unclog our ears to listen to his voice and open our eyes to the opportunities around us. And I believe that God is doing things today. God can use you. There's this story um, that's told over 14 chapters of the Bible. It's one of my favorite sections of scripture. It's in the book of Genesis, and it looks at the life of a guy named Joseph. And Joseph was a part of a very, very dysfunctional family. His great aunts and great, some of you are laughing like I relate, but just wait till you see how dysfunctional this one is. It's, it, he uh, had aunts and, or great aunts or great uncles or something like that, cousins that were born out of incest. A little weird, right? I said this first, it's even a little weird for Wayne County. We're like, uh, we're hick, but we're not that hick. <laughs> and so, so, not, so his, in his distant family, he has these weird things and he's fighting. His, his father fought with his, his uncle. And, and even in his own family, we see that Joseph had very, very wicked brothers. Joseph's father's named Jacob. And Jacob had these rebel sons, these rebel sons that were just wicked, evil people. And there's this moment right before the story of Joseph where we see how wicked Jacob's sons are. And it's a place, and it happens in a place called Shechem. Now say Shechem with me, Shechem. That is going to be really important. Remember that word because we're going to need, you're going to need to know that in a little bit. But anyways, at Shechem, the wicked brothers, these rebel brothers, had made this unbreakable covenant agreement. And the other guys kept their side of the bargain. But the brothers broke their agreement and then brutally murdered all of the men that they had made this agreement with. There's blood on their hands. They'd shed blood and they'd murdered multiple people. And Jacob, the father, looks at his sons and he's so distraught. And we see how furious and sad he is at the wickedness of his rebel sons, where he says and cries out in Genesis, you have ruined me. You have made me stink among all the people of this land. So Jacob has these rebel sons but he also, that, that make his name stink, but he also has a godly son, Joseph, the, the person that these 14 chapters begin to, to show his, the life of Joseph. And, and Joseph was his favored son, his godly son, who didn't make his name stink, but made his name shine. And it says that Jacob loved Joseph more than his other children because Joseph had been born to him in his old age. So one day Jacob had a special gift made for Joseph, a beautiful robe. So Jacob has his rebel sons, but he also has this beloved son, Joseph. And he gives him a coat of many colors, which is a symbol of his, his um, uh, blessed or beloved nature. It's a symbol of his set-apartness and how he is especially loved by his, his father. This, when Joseph would wear this, it would signify his godly nature and his love that he has received from his father. And though Joseph was loved by his father, he was hated by his brothers because of it. But Joseph didn't hate his brothers. 
We see throughout 14 chapters, we see more and more times Joseph will express the love of, of God to his brothers. And Joseph, at, at one mo- moment, hears the voice of God. He, God speaks to them, and he has a dream, and he hears the words of God, and he hears how God has a plan to rescue his rebel brothers, how God is going to elevate Joseph to the place of highest honor, where he will be the right hand to the king. He's going to be elevated that high, and because of his elevation, all his brothers are going to be saved. His rebel brothers are going to be saved. And Joseph, again, hears the words of God and sees his rebel brothers who need to hear it, and he goes to his rebel brothers, and he simply shares the words of God to them. And his brothers respond in an evil way. It says that his brothers responded, so you think you will be our king, do you? Do you actually think you will reign over us? And they hated him all the more because of his dreams and the way he talked about them. His brothers didn't want to hear that they needed a savior. And they especially didn't want to hear that it, the, that the God's method was to elevate their brother to save them. And so they hated him because of it. Joseph simply shares the message of God. He sees a group of, he hears the message of salvation from God. He takes the words of God and articulates it to his rebel brothers and his rebel brothers hate him for it. But as we're seeing this story here, as it's unfolding, I think we see the first way that Joseph's life begins to reveal to us how God can work in our lives and in the everyday stuff of our lives. See, all of us, too, have the words of God given to us that can save our rebel brothers and sisters in this world. And we can begin, and to, God can use us to begin to share that message to the people who need to hear it. And in those moments, we can experience the sacred moments of God, that there's something sacred and special that happens when we take the words of God and share it with someone else. The Bible refers to someone when they, they come to, to know Jesus Christ as being reborn. And I just had a child and I, and I, and a couple months ago, and I wish I had a picture of him. He is a cute dude when he's not grumpy or peeing on me. <laughs> um, but there's something special about new life being created. And it's, there's something, there's a reason we all want to see the baby because there's something special with that. And we can be a part of sacred moments where people are being reborn. People that were dead are now coming to life. This is the sacred moment that we can be a part of. When we share the faith of Jesus Christ with other people, our rebel brothers and sisters, the ground that we stand on becomes holy ground. I'll never forget when I was a kid how God took a very mundane moment in my life and made it a sacred one. So I was uh, playing football and I was the I was the worst fifth grade quarterback in the history of fifth grade quarterbacks. I was like Buffalo Bills bad. That's how awful I was. Yeah, I lost, I lost half the crowd. The stamps, they're storming out. No, <laughs> but I, I was just really, really bad. I think I completed two passes and I was the worst fifth grade quarterback on the worst fifth grade football team in the history of fifth grade football. We lost every single game and only scored one touchdown because the team was up by 50 and felt bad and just moved and let us score. <laughs> That's how bad we were. And so there was nothing holy or sacred about our play. It was really, really bad. And, but my dad would always encourage me because I played on a football team where I was surrounded by people who didn't know Jesus and my coach didn't know Jesus either. And so he told me to just, you know, share my faith and try to invite them to church. And so every single practice and game, I would talk to my coach and say, hey, have you heard about Jesus? And I, I would talk to him and be like, hey, you should come to church with us. And so finally, he, he just looked at me one day and said, all right, arm priester, if you can complete one stinking pass, I'll go to church with you. I was like, awesome. So 
I'm in the huddle and I'm, I'm such a good Christian. As we break, I grab the face mask of my receiver and I look him in the eyes and I say, if you drop this pass, I will murder you. And uh, the love of Jesus was just pouring out of me. And so I get the ball and this has to be God because I think I didn't complete another pass the entire season, but I throw the ball. It's this lame duck pass, but the receiver catches it. And it was so cool because my coach went to church with us and um, you know, the, but the reason he came to church wasn't because I completed that pass. The reason he came was because the Holy Spirit had been working through me and working in him for all those weeks. And God was taking that uh, unholy, horrible play <laughs> and making it sacred ground. And I'll never forget a few months later as I skipped out of kids' church and I sat on the front row. As, and as I was sitting on the front row, I just watched Gene be baptized by my father because he had come to know Jesus Christ. My coach had given his life and, and went from death to life. And it was a very special, sacred moment. And we all can participate in these moments. I think that sacred moments like that are all around us. They're all around us, if, and we just have to be looking for them. And I believe nothing is more life-transforming than the message of Jesus Christ and the gospel message of Jesus Christ. And I think all of us can go and can begin to take our normal conversations and have gospel conversations with people we don't know. We can have conversations that reveal the false saviors and point them to the real one. And when we do that, I believe it can be life-changing and make our everyday life seem sacred. I think it's something that's available for all of you. Now, you might feel like you're not equipped enough. I, and there was nothing special about me. I was not some like preaching fifth grader or something. I didn't have the, some super knowledge of the Bible. I knew about as much as a fifth grader does. But what, what changed that situation, made it sacred, was one, my dad put me in a position where I was surrounded by people who didn't know who Jesus was. And he also constantly behind the scenes was shepherding me and coaching me to share the gospel message of Jesus Christ with others, constantly instilling in me that these people need to hear the hope that we have. I think for many of us here today who are Christians that say, God never does anything cool. God never does anything great in us. I think maybe the reason is that we say God never does anything is because we never let God do anything through us. We want God to do something special and we want to just observe. But I, God's primary method, even in writing the Bible, he had humans. He, he didn't just, oh, and send it down. He had humans write it and he spoke to them. God's primary way of reaching the world is through people who know him. And so if you're here today and you're a Christian and say, God has never done anything, have you ever allowed God to do something through you? There are sacred moments all around us but so often our ears are clogged to the voice of God and our eyes are closed to the opportunities around us. But not every time we share our faith or live out the gospel around people who don't know Jesus will it end really well and have this awesome baptism story. Um, and that's, that's not always the case. When we, when we make a sacred moment and bring in broken people, broken people sometimes will respond in broken ways. And that was very true for, for Joseph. The, the first time he shares the word of God with his brothers, they hated him for it. But then later on, Joseph would go and begin to try to rescue his brothers. He'd actually risk his life to rescue his brothers. And they wouldn't just hate him, but they would actually hurt him. The next passage says here later on in the chapter that Joseph's father said, Are not your brothers pastoring the flock at Shechem? Remember that important word? 
Come, I will send you to them. And he said to him, Here I am. Joseph says, Here I am. So his father said to him, Go now, see if it is well with your brothers and with the flock, and bring me word. Now, if you're just reading that verse, you might not pick up on how scared and nervous Joseph's father Jacob is. But we read the chapters before it, and we take the Bible and the full context of the Bible, we read it all together. And as we read it, we, we remember what happened at Shechem earlier. It was the scene of this horrible sin. These brothers are back in the place where they brutally murdered and broke their treaty, a place where their names stink, a place where there are brothers and, uh, brothers and sisters and fathers who might be looking for revenge. And so they're in this place where they have a horrible ba- reputation. They're in this place of danger. And Joseph's father, Jacob, sees his rebel sons in a place of danger. So he asks his good son, Joseph, to go. And Joseph responds with, here I am. Though the sons have made Jacob's name stink, though the sons have made his name stink, and though he's brought grief and pain to them, the father sends his beloved son to rescue his rebel sons. And though the brothers have hated Joseph, Joseph loves the rebel brothers enough to risk his life to go and save them. And so Joseph goes and looks for his brothers, and eventually he finds them in another place. And he, he's there again to check up on them and see if they need saving. And his brothers respond to his sacrifice with hate. It says that when they found Joseph, they, they stripped him of his robe, the robe of many colors that he wore, and they took him and they threw him into a pit. They take off the symbol of the blessed nature, the, the, the glorified nature of Joseph, the elevated nature of Joseph. They try to strip him of that as they take off the coat and they throw him in a pit to be treated as if he was worse than them. Later on, the brothers would recount about what they had done. And they remember this scene. It says that the brothers say, we saw the distress of his soul when he begged us and we did not listen. So Joseph, who's come to rescue his brothers, is thrown into a pit and he's crying out, help me, save me, please don't leave me here, I need you. And they just look upon them and, and, and they just look at their brother and they do nothing. They leave Joseph in the pit. And as Joseph sees that they won't help them, distress comes on, their, on his face in such a way that his brothers, years and years later, can remember the distress on his face when he was abandoned. Joseph simply was looking to rescue his rebel brothers. He was there to help them. And in that sacred moment, he suffered. As we find the sacred moments around us, at times there's going to be great joy where people come to know Jesus. I've had experience with my coach and with some other people where I've talked to them and they've become Christians. Some are even pastors. It's really cool to see that transformation. But I've also had many times where it went the other way. As, as a kid, I remember sharing my faith with my friends as I was a little older, and my best friends were on a trip, and then the rest of the trip, they just didn't talk to me, and they made fun of me the entire time. Um, as a, a little older, I would have rumors spread about me because of my faith, and people just want, some people wouldn't be my friends anymore. With my family, we would go to broken people. My dad started a church in the inner city of Cincinnati, and we would have drag queens and drug dealers and prostitutes and, and, um, and, and pimps in our home. And many of them would, would 
be really open to our message when they're at our home eating our food or if we would give them money, but then they would just leave and they would break our hearts and they would go back to their old ways. And, yeah, and we, would, we would see the, the brokenness in them and their brokenness sometimes would hurt our family. And you're, you know, I was, a first, I was kindergarten through sixth grade in that time and you just wonder why people would respond that way and you're a part of the mess. But when Jesus is influential in all our lives, we can expect to experience a little bit of a mess. We can expect if we're having these sacred moments that some broken people will respond to the gospel and other people will just respond in broken ways. And for many of us, I think this reality is what really paralyzes us. Because these are real concerns. These are things that could actually happen. If you, and maybe you've thought this before. I know I have at times, I have, I have not shared the gospel with someone or not articulated my faith because I was af- afraid of some of the consequences. Some as simple as, and maybe you've thought this too, I don't want to be the weird Christian person in the office. Or you've thought, I don't want to be um, the person who tries to articulate their faith, but I say something wrong and then I get owned and I get made a fool. And so maybe that's some of the motivation, that fear that we might be hurt by those people. Maybe you've thought, I can't have my family show love to these families who don't know God because what happens if that family is a bad influence on my family? Or you've thought, what happens if my kids and I share our faith and we get made fun of and we're hurt? These are real fears. These things could possibly happen to you. They're legitimate concerns and and they're a cost we have to weigh. So if there's this cost, why would we ever step into these moments of sharing our faith? Why, what could possibly make it worth it? And there's, I've got, there's one reason that I think is a great reason to step out and to share your faith. And that is because when we take risks for God, that's when our faith actually becomes real. Your religion means nothing if it costs you nothing or carries no risk. Is it even real if it costs you nothing and carries no risk? There's a side about us living out our faith that adds value to it. I met with a young Christian once and he was talking and I was telling him about passionately pursuing God. And he said, how can I passionately pursue someone whose only words I hear about them and I talk about them, but that's it. I believe in Jesus and he's God, but how can I be passionate for someone who's just like a blank and he's just someone you read about? I think one of the benefits for us taking this risk, one of the benefits for having our family, putting your families in a position where there might be a little bit of risk to share the gospel is I think it actually strengthens our love for God. Because the less, uh, the less you sacrifice for God and the less God will matter to you and the less God matters to you, the easier it is for you and your families to reject him later on in life. So I believe that's one of the benefits, but that's not a good enough benefit because you'll always be weighing the cost versus the benefit, if that's the only reason. You'll say, well, you know what? It's an eight-level risk, but a six-level benefit, so I'm just not going to share my faith in that time. Or you might say something like, you know what? I'm just okay. Like, we're all going to go to heaven, so I'm kind of complacent with where I am in my faith. I'll just be a good person and do my time till I die and get to be in heaven. And so if that's our motivation, we'll always be weighing it back and forth like that. But I think there's an even better motivation to share our faith. I think the motivation, the main reason, the real reason that we look for the sacred moments all around us, we share our faith with people who don't know Jesus, the reason we put our families in positions where they're surrounded by people who don't know Jesus is because it is a natural response to those who have heard and believed the gospel message of Jesus Christ.
The story of Jesus, or Joseph here shows us how to live and how it shows us a, a picture of how Joseph lived, but uh, it also shows us the one who lived it perfectly. The story of, of Joseph points us to the one who lived it perfectly, which is Jesus Christ, and that's what the story is all about. So much, and if you ever do a study in Joseph, you'll see time and time again, Joseph's life begins to paint a, a great picture. It really foreshadows the coming of Jesus Christ. We see from the start where Joseph's father, Jacob, had a bunch of rebel sons. And God the Father cries out through his prophets and says, Children have I reared and brought up, but they have rebelled against me. Both Jacob and God have these rebel children. And so Jacob, Joseph's father, sees that his rebel children are in the place of their sin. And he sends his beloved son to go and rescue his rebel brother, his rebel sons. And and we see in the story of, of God that God the Father sees us, our rebel sons in our sin, seeing that we needed rescue. So he sends his beloved son, his true son, Jesus Christ, God the son. He sends that son on a rescue mission to save us who were rebels. And just as Joseph responded, here I am. So Jesus responded, here I am. And he went, your will be done, he says to God the father. But Joseph would merely be hurt and thrown in a pit and enslaved. But Jesus would die for us. Jesus' suffering was death on the cross for our sins. And on that cross, he takes the weight of our sin. He takes the punishment of our sin. Where Joseph cried out to his brothers who had forsaken him, Jesus was not only forsaken by all of us who abandoned him, but Jesus on the cross cries out, my father, my father, why have you forsaken me? Because on that cross, he was not only forsaken by us, but he was forsaken by the father because he was taking on the punishment we deserved, which was separation from God forever. But the story of Joseph, and if we had four more hours, I could get through the whole book, but I won't do that, don't worry. The story of Joseph ends with his suffering and suffering and suffering leading to the salvation of his rebel brothers. And the story of Jesus through his death and resurrection and his suffering and suffering and suffering leads to the salvation of all of us who are rebel brothers. And when we hear this truth, the truth that Jesus Christ died the death we deserve on the cross and offers us the reward that only he deserved, which is heaven. When we hear that truth, it begins to shape our hearts and we can't help but respond in a way that says, I will go, God. Just as Jesus said, here I am and died for us. When we see the great sacrifice that Jesus has done for us, we say, all right, here I am, God. I will go to share this message to rebel brothers. We know that when we share the words of God in this world, we might also share in the suffering that was his too but it's worth it because of what God has done for us. As you hear this message and as you see this gospel truth, as you reflect on this gospel truth, you'll see your lost brothers and sisters and, and that need to know the message of Jesus. And you say, though my family might, they might be bad influences on my family. And maybe I'll have to shepherd my kids and say, this is why we don't say the words that you heard, or this is why we don't do those things that those people do. But this is why we are with them is because we are so grateful that God saw us and our sin and rescued us. And he dealt with our sin on the cross. So we're going to deal with their sin when we hang out with them because we love them so much and we love God so much. And that's the other cool thing that this gospel message does is it adds compassion for our rebel brothers, the people that we see that are different from us or more sinful and we might not want to associate. What this does is it begins to remind us that we were rebel brothers too. The only difference is Christ did the work for us and we accepted it. 
We're more alike with those rebel brothers. You're more alike, I'm more alike with the rebel brothers than we are to God. It's such good news. And when that truth works in our hearts, we not only, again, as we have compassion for them, but it'll add a love for God where we see, thank you, God, that I don't have to suffer through that sin anymore. Thank you, God, for saving me. The natural response to the gospel message of Jesus Christ is to open our eyes to the sacred moments around us, open our ears to the voice of God, and to begin to go and live out the gospel so that others can see who Jesus is. As we wrap it up, I just want to challenge you guys. Yes, my going away gift to you is I didn't preach that long. Amen, you're welcome. (laughs) But I would challenge those of you here today who aren't Christians, You might be sitting here saying, God never does anything. But somehow you're here today hearing this message. Could it be possible that God right now is trying to make this your sacred moment? Could it be possible that Jesus has been going after you for years and years so that you can respond and no longer be a rebel son, but share in the inheritance of Jesus Christ? I think that the gospel message reveals that Jesus is good, that he loves us, and that he changes everything. And if you'd say, well, I've met a lot of Christians, and it only seems to have changed where they spend on Sundays, where they spend their time on Sundays, and maybe they don't say bad words, then I'm sorry that you've got that picture. But when someone is living out the gospel and it changes their hearts, it changes every moment, every instance of their life. I wonder, would you respond today? Could today be your sacred moment where you accept the call of Jesus as he ran into your sin, dove into the pit of your sin so that you would no longer have to die the death that you deserve? Would you respond to him today? If you're a Christian here and are struggling to see how God could be involved in the everyday stuff of your life or you're a Christian and say, you know what? My Christianity is I go to church and I try to be good. God doesn't really do anything. If you're here and you're a Christian and you say, God doesn't live up to the hype, might I suggest that maybe your eyes are a little closed to the opportunities around you. Maybe your ears are a little clogged to God's voice. Maybe he wants to do something special through you. I think there are sacred moments in your everyday stuff of life. It's just, are you willing to let God work through you? What does that mean? If the, if the Holy Spirit is speaking to your heart and you're like, I need to begin to do this better, I hope that the gospel is motivating you of Jesus Christ and I hope that it's challenging your life. And for some of you, that first step might be just picking a family that your family can show love to, that can live out the gospel and begin to just intentionally love and be involved with someone who doesn't know who Jesus is. Maybe you are already have a bunch of relationships with people who don't know Jesus and maybe what God is calling you to do, maybe your application could be simply to begin having, instead of just having conversations, begin to look for strategic moments to have gospel conversations. Gospel conversations are really simple. You first allow them to reveal the false savior in their life and people do it all the time. Man, my job stinks and I work all these hours and I don't get the raise. Well, that's a perfect opportunity to articulate how their job isn't a good enough savior. Man, my kids to keep letting me down. That's a perfect opportunity to graciously guide them to see that that's not a good enough savior. And then once you've had that common ground, you can begin to point them toward the real one. 
not with ulterior motives, but with an ultimate motive so that they can have the same great gift that you have already received. I ask you guys today, will you respond to the gospel message? For those who have yet to believe, will you take that step today and make this your first sacred moment where God takes you from death to life? And if you're a Christian, will you respond to the gospel and take a risk and share your faith? Will you allow the gospel message to move you to take advantage of the sacred moments that are around you? I think if you guys do, Ontario, New York would not be the same. Let's pray. You want to cut? Let's pray. God, we're just so thankful for your love and your compassion. We thank you, God, that you ran into our sin on a rescue mission to save us. I pray if there's anyone here, God, that has not made a decision to follow you, I pray that you'd soften their hearts. I pray that they would make today a sacred moment where they confess their sins, confess that they're rebel brothers, and say, God, I believe you're God and I will follow you. And Lord, today I pray for all of us who are Christians. I pray that the gospel message would just encourage us and we'd have so much joy, whether it's, whether it's going to be a time of, of difficulty or, or ease as we share our faith, God. I pray that we'd be so excited about what you've done, that we would share our, our faith with others. Help us to find those people, those rebel brothers that were just like us before we found you. Help us to find them and show love to them and to minister to them. And it's your name we pray. Amen. This is um, my last Sunday, as Pastor said, and I uh, wrote a letter because if I just said thank you and brought up all the memories, we'd be here till four o'clock. So I tried to keep it short. But if you could just, before you go, just indulge me as I read this letter to, to Living Word that I, I wrote for all of you. Living Word, thank you for letting me share my heart with you today, and thank you for allowing me to spend the last four and a half years with you. I've enjoyed the youth leaders' meetings and all the inside jokes and shenanigans, the impromptu visits to use our bathroom and hang out, which kids would just show up to my door. Hey, PJ, can I pee? I'm like, all right. <laughs> and then they would stay for an hour. It was really cool, though. Happened at least 10 times. And the, the 100 or so meals that we've had in our homes with all of you. I'll miss being pasty PJ each year on our missions trip because of my really pale skin. I'll miss beating Wayne Richardson at Euchre all the time on those trips too. I'll, I'll miss picking on Catherine in the office. I'll miss my extra special Dave time. I'll miss catching movies with Super Steve. And, and I'll also miss my basketball classics with Michael Arase. I'm thankful for the countless hours all the youth leaders have poured out to the students over the years. I'm especially thankful for Steve, Dave, and Jesse for being with me from the very beginning through the ups and the downs, and there's been both, always having my back and always communicating the gospel to the teenagers. I'm thankful for Jack Inman from the day I got here, um, looking after me and taking care of me. I'm thankful for the fantastic kids workers who have helped your kids see Jesus each and every Sunday, especially Tim and Christy Woodcock, who have grown with me the last four and a half years. I'm really proud of the growth I've seen in them too. I'm thankful for Russ and Amy Eliason for being a blessing to this church and for being a blessing to my ministry, giving me wisdom and guidance and uh, encouragement and even more so blessing us personally by, you're not going to like this, but being aunts and uncles to Allison and I. 
I think I owe the, the, I wrote this, I think I only owe them about 47 favors. So sorry, I'm leaving. So you won't get to collect. (laughs) I'm thankful for how Catherine has mothered me and looked after me the past four years. I'm thankful for lunches with Pastor Barden, the times he's taken to invest in me and how he's helped me grow as a pastor, father, and man. Didn't cry this time. Didn't good. I'm thankful for Pastor's family and the, the joy it's been to get to know Kathleen and Wesley and Lily and Colby and just appreciate them. And most of all, I'm thankful for all of you and the kindness and generosity you've shown our family. I hope these past four years, four and a half years, have helped you, your teens, and your children see how beautiful Jesus is and how the hope we have in Jesus is something we should work to share even to the least of these. As we go off to Columbus, working our new day jobs and hopefully one day launching a new church, we will always remember our time here fondly. On behalf of Allison and I both, we just want to thank you guys. We appreciate you and we love you. Glad to spend the season with you. God bless.